Coming up on this week's show, why GameStop, Nokia and Blockbuster have been making the headlines. How to contact the space station with your C64. And we get the inside story of Turrican with Julian Eggerbrand. Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you really want to spoil yourself, why don't you treat yourself to one of their amazing books that we'll be telling you more about very soon. Browse their whole library on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 261, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to our first show of February. You know, actually, I was thinking before, you know, they often refer to um, that kind of classic cinema of like, you know, the 1940s, 50s and 60s as the golden age of cinema. We like to talk about retro video games as the golden age of gaming. And actually, pretty much a lot of stuff we do in our lives is retro. I'm actually sat here drinking a uh, nice beaker full of Cherryade right now. (laughs) I've got a mini disc player in front of me as well. I'm sat in the retro cave right now my re- all with all my retro games around me, funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> so on the show each week, we reminisce about the classic days of old school video games. And, I mean, there is quite a lot happening in the world of retro gaming that we bring you up to speed with every week. You know, new games released on classic systems, new versions of old hardware, and just really cool things that people are doing with retro computers and retro consoles. But this week as well, we have got the most incredible guest. Now, this is actually... A story that we've been trying to get for a while because we have a lot of people, particularly in Europe, who want to know the story behind the Turrican series. And actually, it's quite timely because it just got a re-release on the PlayStation 4 and the Nintendo Switch in the Turrican flashback compilation. So today, we're going to be joined by Julian Egerbrecht, who was the head and founder of Factor 5. Oh God, it's so good to have Julian on because you know we've we we love to talk about European gaming and like Factor Five were the key to European gaming. They brought out Turrican, which was just that kind of wonderful arcade feel, and uh, really actually made other people look up and take European gaming seriously. And they were based in Germany, and they worked really closely with Rainbow Arts as well, who were mm. another legendary company. So we're going to get the story of those initial three Turrican games. And, of course, we had the console ports as well. I mean, it came out on the C64, the Amiga, the Atari ST. But then we got, um, it was Mega Turrican on the Mega Drive and Super Turrican on the Super Nintendo. I couldn't really get those the wrong way around, could I? Um, So we're going to find out how they went about developing for the consoles. And then, I mean, they had a really interesting history with Factor 5 because they moved from Germany over to America because they worked really closely with LucasArts, of course, on the Indiana Jones games, and then, later on in the late 90s, loads of Star Wars games on the consoles. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting story, and amazingly, they got into console streaming in the end as well. So, mm. so they kind of managed to uh, keep the company going, and uh, actually there is now a Switch release of Turrican coming out and a PS4. Yeah, well, they're actually out now because, I mean, <laughs> I took my Switch to work today, Um I don't think my boss listens to this podcast, luckily. I probably spent about four and a half hours playing it and didn't get anything done today. That was a good recovery there, that was. (laughs) It wasn't even recovery, just a... I don't think he listens. (laughs) 
Yeah, so uh, you know, they, they are really good versions as well. And there is more Turrican goodness on the way that we'll hear about with Julian very soon. But yeah, just such an interesting story um, covering everything from those early Turrican games right through to the uh, Star Wars stuff on the consoles. And like you said then, Ravi, it was actually Netflix that saved the company. So um, we'll hear more about that in the next 20 minutes when Julian Egerbrecht is going to be our guest very soon on the Retro Hour. Now, we have got some big stories to talk about this week. Let's go straight in, actually, with a Nintendo story. And someone has made the smallest real hardware N64 you will ever see. This is so cool. Ravi sent this over. Um, this is by a YouTuber called G-Man Mod, who I've never heard of before. But he's, he's got a lot of views, he's got a lot of followers, he's got 500,000 on this video already, and it's only been out a couple of weeks. But yeah, this is a essentially a mini portable N64. I can't even describe what it looks like. It's literally like the size of an N64 cartridge, and it's real hardware that plays real N64 cartridges, which I absolutely love. It's not, you know, emulation or anything like that. Um, and he's, he's posted a six-minute video on how he does it. It, it, it way over my head. How he does it. All I know is he's made it out of Switch Joy-Cons. Um, or he used, he's at least used the buttons and the sticks from that, or just the, just the analog sticks. I think the thing about this is it's insanely small. Like, yeah. you know, compared to the N64, it's... Yeah, the N64 was, wasn't small, was it? it not, wasn't like, not at all, no. He's no. crammed <laughs> a load of stuff in here. And, and the way that he's actually done it is... Um, it reminds me of when they first built computers because it's like this kind of wire wrap style. You know, he's got all the components, shoved mm. them in there and then physically soldered them in and created this wire wrap. But actually looking at it, he's put a little cartridge in there. Yeah, and yeah. And it's about the size of the cartridge, isn't it? It's, it literally, it's literally, but what, what I really like about it is if you see the reverse of it, it looks like a switch dock. You, know, you plug your N64 <laughs> cartridge in it, um, which I thought was really cool. Um, but I'm interested. I don't think it will use the expansion pack games. I don't think it will be able to play like Majora's Mask and Donkey Kong 64. Um, but I'm interested to see if there's a, a drift on the uh, on the analog stick for the uh, Joy-Con. If there's any drifting to the left on there or anything like that with it. Um, but this is so cool. This is definitely something I would pick up. You know, it's mad to think, it. you know, someone can do this at home. And yeah. Like kind of 3D print it create the whole case, get the whole mm. thing going, get mm. a little screen in there. It's just mad, isn't it, that you could do this in, like, 2021? And, uh, you know, this would be something that, like, Nintendo struggled to do back in the days. Yeah, absolutely. This, for me, it's just more of a reason for N64 just to do this N64 Mini. Just do it already. Like, this guy's got a real-life N64 running on its own screen in the palm of your hand like come on nintendo like because it it does look like a a squished switch doesn't it really it looks like if you'd uh like half a switch really it's got the screen in the middle you've got the uh the the analog sticks either side of it and then he's put like a a little lcd screen in there as Mm, well mm. um what i think is amazing though that when i first saw this i was like oh yeah it's going to be like a a little fpga emulation thing you know running it but it's not this is actually it's kind of like split the n64 motherboard up and then join it together inside this really small case. The like you said, Joe, is really about the same size as an N64 cartridge. Yeah. And really, this is going to be the minimum that you could ever get an N64 down to because, you know, because of the size of the cartridge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And also, he's been helped. He's been helped by previous projects. So there's stuff like, you know, he's got a little power power board here 
that's kind of been reduced in size, a 64-amp one. And, you know, there's been a history of people developing portables because he was behind the um, uh, other small ones which he created. I think it was the SP, uh, N64 SP. So, you know, there's a history of these boards being small and they've all been made to this micro size. So he's managed to put them all together and fit them into this box. But uh, I think there's been a lot of development to get to this stage. I was going to say, he he did do the N64 SP a couple of months ago, but that's quite chunky. Like, it's not not small. It is small. It's small for an N64, but, like, I've just kind of flipped through that video and it's, it's not as small as this one, like, it's it's bigger than it's it's probably like Game Gear size the SP mm. one he's done, um, so th- this is honestly like 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 Dan says it's like smaller than the game cartridge it's tiny. <laughs> I just love the fact you know in my mind I'm thinking that this guy is that fed up with how lousy N64 emulation is. He's like right I'm going to build my own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah I mean it, what what an incredible it does just constantly amaze me the creativity and the talent you know of people in the retro gaming community. Um, so definitely worth checking out that video. Of course, everything we talk about, it's all in our show notes on your podcast client or at theretrohour.com. Now, this next story, I must admit, um, made me feel rather thick when I heard about this last week. Because, I mean, we've been covering the demise of the game store, in particular GameStop in America, who, you know, last year tried to do that, um, you know, transforming a few of their stores into retro gaming lounges, you know, to try and get people back in there. Then obviously the pandemic struck and they're really struggling now. But then all of a sudden their stock price actually went through the roof last week. Um, (laughs) And I know, Ravi, you've been keeping a close eye on this because it's not just GameStop. There are also a few other companies from the past that seem to be getting propped up by people on Reddit who are investing in them. Yeah, I'm going to try and explain it. And I'm known worldwide for my business acumen, so this is going to be really <laughs> accurate. We, we, no. we call him Ravi Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Off the back of this, Ravi's going to be like, right, this is what you need to do in the stock market. <laughs> like, <laughs> send me all your stocks. No, um, I, I, I've been looking at this and... The way I could, I'm going to try and explain this. Simplify sorry, it, man. Because sorry, when, sorry if I get this all. Because when Dad said he feels thick, I feel thick on every bloody episode of this show. So <laughs> okay, really so simplify it. That is the only smart me. one among us. So I'll, I'll, I'll simplify it. So, you know, GameStop, like you said, they were trying to uh, kind of get people in. They were trying to turn it into this more of a destination venue. Mm-hmm. And then COVID struck. So people weren't buying games. Full stop. So what happens is when that happens, you get uh, a lot of short sellers who basically go, oh, this company is going to go bankrupt. So we are going to buy loads of stock, short sell our stock and say, oh, okay, it's going to go bankrupt. So let's make a bit of money out of it going bankrupt. Now, what seemed to happen was this is usually really predictable. What seemed to happen was the Reddit guys were like, no, we don't want GameStop to go bankrupt. So what we're going to do is all team together, put a little bit of money into the stocks and basically, well, a lot of money into the stocks and basically boost it. So what happened was all these kind of stock people and hedge fund people that were predicting GameStop to go down, suddenly all their predictions were completely wrong and it, it, they lost £70 billion pounds and it's absolutely mental. And then this, start, this trend started happening with other stores. So Blockbuster, which remember, Blockbuster has one store in Bend, mm. Oregon, mm. <laughs> went up 700%. Mm. 
which was just mad because people yeah. were like, just buy Blockbuster stock, just going crazy. And then Nokia as well. So I think, like, obviously this is a whole financial thing, but the interesting thing is the choice of companies here. And I think this is like, you know, people are saying, oh, these companies don't have value anymore. And this is kind of Reddit and, and the internet saying, actually, they do have a bit of a value. You know, it might be different to what you guys expect. And I was, I was going to ask you guys, if you think there's a company in the UK, uh, like that would kind of wimpy do with one of these surgeons, wimpy would be a perfect <laughs> example. Everybody, everybody knows wimpy. It was in America. That would be a perfect example. Wimpy, Maplins, um, yeah, Maplins, yeah, Woolworths, yeah, Woolworths. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know the thing that I don't get here now. I've been seeing this everywhere. Does this actually help the companies, though? No, I don't think it does, actually, because it's... Right. Because, you know, people, once you get to that level with all the stock, you have to sell it to someone, don't you? So even if you've made all this profit, who wants to buy GameStop stock at, like, 325 a share? It's... I think it's more of a kind of a proving a point thing. What uh, there may be a I, few I, people I, that have made money on it, uh, but I, I don't... You know, it, it definitely brings a lot of attention to GameStop. Like all the yeah. company, all the outlets around the world are, are talking about it at the moment. I even like turned on the radio and they were like GameStop. I was like, "Geez, wow!" Because I've been seeing people saying, "Oh, that's it. GameStop is saved now, thanks to Reddit." But then I've seen other angles on it where it was essentially, you know, a group of guys, well, quite a, quite a large community on Reddit who essentially wanted to uh, stick it to the traders on Wall Street and, like, you know, yeah, show them I, up. Really, I think that's what it was. It was just like saying, you know, you guys don't think there's value in it. We think there's value in these nostalgic kind of things, and uh, then just kind of showing that the system's a bit broken if this can happen. To be honest, I, I, I don't know the name of the guy, but didn't some billionaire Wall Street guy who's British went on like BBC News the other day, and he was just like. You're ruining it for the billionaires. You're ruining it for us all. <laughs> he was just like, you're just sat at home on your benefits while um, while hardworking people like me are losing their money. And you just yeah, like, oh, I think well, well, I think initially they they went out and they did that with the companies, but yeah. then there's been a lot of stuff where like the app that they were using to buy the stock suddenly suddenly stopped letting them buy them. Is it Robin Hood? Trying or something? To, yeah, yeah, trying to protect the um, the investors rather than the public and that, yeah. that that that's what really enraged people but i think mm. the main thing main point for the retro hour is these are nostalgic companies and people yeah. are uh, kind of bringing attention to them which uh, is is pretty mad and we're recording this on saturday the 31st and this is moving really fast guys uh sunday the 31st of january is moving really fast. <laughs> 2021. Yeah, yeah. So, so by the time this comes out, it could be completely different and who knows which companies could come back. We should start some uh, retro hour stocks. <laughs> I, I just had this vision of like, you know, the CEO of GameStop like waking up last Monday morning and be like, what the hell? Looking at his phone, it's gone up like, you know, 2,000% overnight or something. Commodore, where so. are you, man? Commodore, come on. <laughs> I think there is actually, yeah, there isn't there a Commodore that make mobile phones or something yeah, in yeah, something somewhere like in Europe. That, so. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, you know, Magnavox or something could go huge. Who knows? <laughs> well, the power of the internet. So yeah, like you said, definitely an interesting story, something we haven't seen before. So we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that developing story. Now, I know you're eager to talk about this one, Joe, because it is all about your favourite game of all time, or one of your favourite games of all time. <laughs> um, this is, of course, Golden Eye. Now, we have mentioned before um, that it nearly got 
an upgrade on the Xbox. I believe that's when we did an episode all about GoldenEye that got mentioned that didn't actually make it to market in the end. It got cancelled. But now there is a video that shows a good two and a half hours of this unreleased GoldenEye port to the Xbox 360. Yeah, so this has uh, been uploaded this week uh, onto YouTube on a channel which is a like a dedicated GoldenEye 007 content creator channel, uh, a guy called Grazlu Double O, or Grasslu Double O, sorry. Essentially, this is a 4K, two and a half hour video of what could have been, which is, you know, GoldenEye 007 for the Xbox Live Arcade, the 2007 version we never saw. Um, it's a long video, I'm not going to lie, I've not I've not watched the whole thing, I've watched like the first 10 minutes and then skipped through, you know, skipped through it, just looking at the levels and stuff like that. It looks pretty good. It's interesting that it was only going to be an Xbox Live arcade game, which I feel like it should have got, it should have got more love than that, but it didn't even get the arcade love because it didn't even come out. But it does look good. Um, there's like a, you know, at the start, you know if you leave the original game just running, rather than it playing itself, it goes through the credits for the characters like a uh, montage of like every single character model. It's like, you know, James Bond as 007 kind of thing. They've got that at the start of the video and it switches between, you know, the 2007 graphics and like the 97 graphics or 98 when it came out. And the comparison is nice, uh, but it's not like mind blowing. It's well, not like, have, oh my God. Like, Have, look, have you watched the 4K version yet or can't you do that on your thing? Um, I've just been watching it on YouTube on my computer. I don't think I, yeah, I'm watching now, the 4K but... version on YouTube at the moment, and I must say this does look stunning in this res- resolution. <laughs> it looks like Counter-Strike Source or or, or something like that. Let me put it on. Pre- press the cogwheel. <laughs> I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm doing watch it. Joe's computer crash now. Yeah. <laughs> it does look good, but like, I don't, I, it, I wouldn't say it's, mm, I wouldn't say it's mind-blowing for 2007. Like, considering we had, like, Crisis and stuff like that. Did we have Crisis in 2007? I feel like we yeah, did. that was your camera. Um, um, you, you know, but, but there was actually a later version, wasn't there, that the GoldenEye Reloaded that came out in, yeah, 2011. Oh, that was a version on the Wii as well, wasn't it? Yeah, the Wii so, and the 360. Was it the 360? Is that, is it, does that look different to this, then? Does yeah, yeah, yeah. Worse this looks than that? completely different to that. Um, I, I'm not massively familiar with that one, but that well, uh, my understanding of that, that was, like, a new game but they just mm. kind of stuck the golden eye on there. Like, oh, it's golden eye, even though it wasn't really like golden eye. Um, right. and whereas there was a whereas huge... this is just an upgrade. This is just like a full on overhaul remake kind of thing of, of golden eye. Like it plays the same as the original golden eye. It's all the same sound effects. Like I'm not, I'm not too sure if they've literally just overhauled the graphics or if they've built it again from the ground up, but the, the, the gameplay is like identical um so it, it would be really nice to kind of like get together at christmas and you know like we're used to and play it uh on the multiplayer because the last 30 minutes of the video is the multiplayer and it does look really nice nice yeah and there I mean, was a huge it, demand for it you know like yeah there was i, I remember uh what was it tomorrow never dies came out and stuff like that and it, it never really kind of hit that golden yeah, eye, yeah. Uh, you know it, it never hit that popularity again did it no no and also they even though time splitters the whole series kind yeah. of um, really got a little boost from GoldenEye fans going on to it, using the same kind of engine as well. I reckon this would have really helped as well. But uh, yeah, that kind of GoldenEye feel, you know, something missing. So I reckon if they released this, it would have sold massively. Well, apparently they actually obtained this from a service called PartnerNet, which is kind of a, a version of Xbox Live available only to developers. Hmm. So it wasn't like a, a hack or anything like that, but the saying that they are going to release this version of the game at some point this year. 
Okay. So there might be a chance for everyone to play it eventually. That would be nice. Get Ravi to come. Although I wonder how you. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's the thing. Because I wonder if I mean if it's an Xbox arcade. I guess you'd have to have a uh, kind of a modded or a hacked 360 to play it on then to install it. I don't know. Um, I would imagine maybe when they say they're going to release it, it's just going to be emulated on PC. Maybe. I would imagine. Is there a 360 emulator on the PC? I don't know. Oh, no, Probably. no. But, um, Is there not? <laughs> I don't think there's a very good one, but they'll put, no. yeah, they they might release it on the same architecture or who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But, Maybe Dan's uh, right. Maybe you do need to have a, a modded Xbox 360. Might be coming out on the Switch. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. That would be really cool. I'm sure I'm sure Ravi's got a guide somewhere on hacking the 360 if I need it doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's easy. <laughs> Ravi's like, I've got six. <laughs> <laughs> now, this next story just blew my mind. I mean, I remember actually being a kid, and I've always found it really interesting twinning computers and amateur radio. Because I remember I had a friend who um, he managed, his dad was really into like ham radio, and he managed to like um, read weather stations you know, kind of get, get weather station output on his Amstrad. And I always thought that was really cool, the fact that they had an aerial on the roof and it would, you get binary into the computer somehow and it would show stuff that had come over the air on his computer. That's always blown my mind. However, our friend Christian Perifractic, Retro Recipes, has gone one step further than that and got his Commodore 64 to talk to the International Space Station. Yeah, I, I thought this was a really cool, neat idea. Like, um, us nerds in ham radio have been contacting the ISS for years. But um, well, haven't you got a ham radio set up in your shed? <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah. Um, <laughs> He's so, contacted the space station with it. <laughs> so if you think about it, when they did the moon landing, they had to mm. get that video signal back from, from the moon, and that was a thing called slow-scan television, which went over the radio waves, but it was broadcast directly from the moon. And you can send on, uh, like, mad frequencies, basically. You can send a signal to the International Space Station. And you can also do ham calls. So um, there used to be a a channel on YouTube, and a guy would stand in a car park with a big aerial, point it at the ISS with his ham radio, and go, like, you know, communicate with them. And they'd actually talk back to him. But the problem is, because the ISS is spinning around the Earth really fast. Hmm you've only got a small window of time when it passes over. So what Christian's done is he's actually set up a Commodore 64 that communicates to a ham radio and then outputs text. But because the ISS is passing over really quickly, he's he's got to put it on a hotkey. So he just bangs the text and presses it really quick so that signal can then get sent up to the international space station and it's amazing actually like if you look on youtube there's lots of people communicating with guys like tim peak in space and they're Mm. very used to amateur radio actually they're very used to um, talking with school kids about uh, the space station usually they have a little link up with amateur radio and they talk over it and it's amazing that you know somebody in space you can contact with your vintage computer i mean we've talked about it before that you know actually the the computers on a lot of spaceships are really really old-fashioned i mean you know you think of the technology that got us to the moon you know got a, a wristwatch yeah oh got, the commodore well, 64 is more advanced than that yeah <laughs> far more um but yeah i love it in the video as well the fact that he connects to the international space station and it's kind of like Starting into a bulletin board, isn't it? It actually, you know, identifies itself that you're connected. And then when he does get the message to it, it actually rebroadcasts it back to Earth as well. 
the text that he put, he put, you know, sent from a Commodore 64. And then I guess that would have got sent to any terminal that was listening around the world. Yeah. And uh, basically they, they have a ham, ham aerial on there. And mm. uh, that recently, well, transceiver, so you can send up and uh, receive down. And that recently got upgraded as well. So that might have really helped. But also there are ham radio satellites um, throughout the whole atmosphere. So you can kind of contact ham radio satellites, send stuff up into space and send it back. And uh, I just love kind of stuff like that. And, you know, to think they're probably the luckiest buggers in the world right now, aren't they? they they're in isolation <laughs> they're floating around carefree you know, and no corona up there yeah but they ain't got an n64 mini oh <laughs> true I, I bet ravi's bought a big extension lead of amazon to drag his 64 out to the ham radio this weekend oh yeah well one thing i want to do is when they landed on the moon they placed a tiny mirror on the moon and yeah. uh, they fire a laser back uh, at the mirror and then back to measure the distance the moon is actually at and i want to give that a go one day and he just just need to get a huge laser. <laughs> just got a very bright light on your phone. Your <laughs> <laughs> That'll be next. I'm sure you've got one from your Raven day somewhere. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Ravi's just starting to sound like an evil genius. Like, in his shed. And then I want a death ray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, this video that Christian did, you know, when I saw the title, I was like, no way. So it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen on YouTube. Um, definitely worth checking out. Amazing work. Now, before we get into our chat with uh, Julian Egebrecht, all about the story of Turrican and uh, Star Wars games and lots more as well, Doom on the Sega Mega Drive. Now, I remember playing the um, the 32X version of it and thinking that that was pretty impressive. But now, using the power of a modern EverDrive cartridge, they've ported a version to the Sega Mega Drive of Doom that actually looks pretty comparable to the original PC version to me. It's pretty fast, isn't it? Like yeah. um, Looking at this, they're actually using the power of the um, cart. So the EverDrive is actually doing quite a bit of work which is pretty amazing it kind of reminds me of you know like the vfx chip or something you've got this car and maybe other games are going to get adapted to actually use the power of these everdrive cards they are a bit expensive and I was, is don't... that not cheating a little bit like i know it's still running on the original hard drive but like i don't know i yeah, mean it's cool. Ravi made a good point there i mean you know the super fx chip was a similar kind of thing yeah true it? yeah very true yeah, it is kind of modern technology kind of running through there. But, you know, they haven't, like, strapped a PC in there. <laughs> think, so. There's no, no death ray or laser gun on it. <laughs> no, no. But um, it's, it's, it's really smooth and it's just really cool running. And, I, I, and I've always wanted to kind of uh, play Doom on the Mega Drive as well. I, I, I know they've, they don't even need the uh, 32X for this. It's just uh, the EverDrive, really. Well, this looks a lot better than the 32X version. And, I mean, they've got it running at a, a stable 30 frames a second, which, you know, for, for a 3D shooting game on a Mega Drive is... That is pretty impressive. Yeah, and we uh, interviewed uh, Janelle Jacrez as well, and she was uh, developing the Doom port, and she, she she remembers telling us about how, how kind of um, rushed it was. And, you know, they really didn't have the time to optimise that game or anything. So it's good to see kind of a complete, really fast version with all textures, flaws and all enemies and sprites as well. Yeah, we just need them to uh, redo the 3DO version next, don't we? Yeah, yeah. 
get a good one on there as well. So uh, imagine if you just saw this back in 1995. I remember, you know, being an Amiga user then, seeing Doom running. You know, I've talked about it before in my local branch of Ryman, the stationers, where I'd uh, I'd go on a Saturday afternoon to check out all the hot new games. (laughs) There must must have been some guy in there who's like a massive gamer. He'd always have them running on the PCs in there, but I never thought that the Mega Drive could do anything like this. I mean, everyone's got to check this video out. It's it's just mind blowing. They've managed to port it that well. I just imagine going into a stationery shop and seeing all these demons getting killed and like <laughs> miniguns. <laughs> Can I Kids buying back please? to school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that old lady's looking over the top of the uh, the shelves of A4 paper, like uh, raised eyebrows. What's going on over there? It was a bit like that, actually. <laughs> I didn't dream it. This definitely happened. So, um, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that Doom running on the Mega Drive on the uh, the newest ever drive cartridge. Definitely worth a look in. Now, before we get into our chat with Julian Egerbrecht, let's just give a massive thank you to our incredible sponsor, our friends at bitmap books now we've talked about their new game boy the box art collection recently which is available now from their website bitmapbooks.co.uk but actually they've got plenty of other games if you know the weather's a bit drab and dark at the moment it's that time of year when you need a bit of cheering up so why don't you treat yourself i mean they've got some incredible books on here i know you're a massive fan of the um sega master system visual compendium book joe yeah, man, I got this a couple of years ago. This is a really, really cool book. I'm a simple man with simple pleasures, um, but the aesthetic of it is absolutely beautiful. Um, but yeah, man, you get 420 pages here of pixel art with interviews from, you know, the original developers, um, all about the games. It's got over 150 games here as well uh, with information all about them. Um, and literally, like, just you've got all the box art in here you've got pixel art and you've also what i really like as well you've got like original packaging for the accessories and stuff um and in the middle there's like full like pull outs like it's like an a4 book but you can just like you know you pull out into like a3 posters and stuff like that it's just an awesome book dan actually got me this for christmas a couple of years ago and it was a wicked present and i always find myself looking reading over it when i'm meant to be working well, I've found a really interesting one as well, which is called Generation 64. And it's about how the Commodore 64 inspired a generation of Swedish gamers. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, it's covering gamers, artists, musicians, crackers, programmers, and how they went on to form some of the big companies like uh, the developer Dice actually came out of Sweden. And amazingly, mm. it's got an introduction uh, by Chuck Pedal. And uh, it just looks like a fantastic little book. And I really kind of want to delve into this because, you know, this episode we're talking about European gaming. And, uh, yeah, you can't get more European than Swedish C64 developers, can you? And, of course, their latest book, Game Boy, the box art collection, which is a real celebration of that Nintendo's monochrome marvel. And you can order all these books. Why don't you treat yourself? And, of course, you'll be helping out the podcast by doing it by heading to their website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. Now, of course, we have a patron running as well. We're actually getting set to record uh, this week our latest episode of our patrons' exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours. And we've been playing games that we chose for each other and we're going to give them a little review this week now uh no spoilers and i know rav you spent a good few hours today playing um a couple of games we've suggested to you haven't you You know what it was really nice because it was like i've been set to play these games as a task and i've kind of sat down and played them and spent time and focused on the intros and the outros and stuff and yeah really just soaked it in so it's nice and i love setting games for you guys as well because i can't wait to hear what your reactions are I'm really looking forward to what you guys think of your games as well. And I had to, li- it took me like a week to think of the games as well. And every time I was like, have you guys played this game? Yeah, we've played it. I was like, oh, for God's sake. And then <laughs> I think the games I came up with were really good. 
Yeah, so we haven't told each other anything at all what we think of them, so you're going to hear our reviews of games that we've chosen for each other this week on the Retro Hour After Hours podcast. Of course, if you want to access that, not only do you get that podcast, a bonus one, you also get um, our patrons hangout that we're going to be doing next weekend as well. I should be this weekend when the show comes out on Sunday evening. You um, get an early episode a lot of weeks as well. You get it ad-free. But really the reason that you're doing it is to support this podcast and make sure that it continues and we can bring it out each week. It covers all the costs that we have for doing this show and of course you will get a mention in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame like this week a massive thank you Matt Loren John Treeholt Patrick Bregger Ross Mantle and Jason Langridge who all made donations into the running of the show via Patreon and if you'd like to do the same that'll be massively appreciated at theretrohour.com right then are we ready to get the inside story on the legendary Factor 5 games of course Star Wars Turrican series that's back again for 2021 with the founder of Factor 5 Julian Egerbrecht next on the Retro Hour podcast Welcome to Turrican <laughs> You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest and we are so excited to get some stories about the legendary Factor 5 and of course games like Turrican that is actually back on the PS4 and the Switch and there is a lot more in the pipeline as well. So let's say hello to the brilliant Julian Egebrecht. Hello Julian. Thank you. Hey, glad to be here. Great to have you joining us now. Uh, before we get into these stories of these incredible games that you've worked on in your career and continue to work on today, I thought it might be quite interesting just to kind of backtrack right to the beginning. Where did it all kind of begin for you with computers and video games? Uh, it really began for me um, with something which outside of Germany very few people um, really are aware of. It, it was a console which came out at around the same time as the as the Magnavox or um, the Odyssey. Um, and it was called the Intertone, the Intertone 4000. Uh, it's very craft work. And, uh, and it, it, as far as I know, it only came out in Germany. Um, and it was uh, a German attempt of basically doing a cartridge-based system. Um, came out in the, um, I believe, 76, 77, something around that time. And by 79, actually, quite a few people had it in, in Germany. So um, it, it, it actually was for a brief time until Atari came, came along with a 2600. Um, it was probably the most popular console there. And um, lo and behold, a friend of my, my parents um, who was uh, babysitting me, um, well, I wasn't a baby, I was a teenager, obviously, or basically entering the teenage years, but um, uh, my parents were traveling um, and he basically um, was, was looking um, after me for, for the two weeks while they were traveling. And uh, he had an Intertone 4000 and I completely fell for the thing. Um, and um, was was uh, absolutely addicted to it. It had the typical variations, as you can imagine, at the time of combat, outlaw, essentially clones of all of that stuff uh, that, that uh, the Atari systems and, and most of the other Pong variants, of course, um, all of that good stuff. But I got completely hooked, and with that, then, of course, my next step was logically, um, I believe in 81, um, I got a, a, a Atari VCS, a 2600, um, with the hideously expensive cartridges uh, back then in Europe. And uh, because I came from Atari, um, I entered home computers with the Atari 8-bit, which is a little bit unusual. 
um, mm. because ob obviously the Specky um, wasn't a thing ever, or the ZX81, uh, they, they never really caught on in Germany. In Germany, it was a little bit weird. It was Atari 8-bit and TI, um, uh, the Texas Instruments, um, and uh, at, at the time, until Commodore then completely took over with the um, with the VIC twenty and the and the uh, Commodore sixty four, um, but but yeah, so that that was my entry point, and the Atari eight bit computer um, really got me into thinking about hey, um, maybe maybe um, you can do this stuff yourself, or basically find friends, and of course then. Um, I mean, it's been it's been a few decades, so I guess we can mention it. Uh, then, of course, piracy comes along. Yeah. Um, and you and you meet a lot of people um, you you swap the discs with. And some of those people actually are not only in it for for pirating the, uh, the games, but but basically um, genuinely interested in how does this machine work and everything. And that got me going. And by the end of the 80s, um, um, the whole thing was really underway. So you were really into the kind of hacking and demo scene culture as well. Um, were you guys like sharing discs in the playground then or, or how, how were you getting hold of these things? <laughs> it's not so much playground. I'm older than you think. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so um, I was, I was 11 in 1980. Um, that dates me quite a bit, but, but yeah, that means so pretty much the, the uh, explosion of the home computers in, in the 80s um, was really my teenage years. And um, it's less the playground, it's more the, the high school um, or basically school backyard where we were swapping discs. And then um, what was interesting about it is you suddenly meet a ton of other people and the main meeting grounds, at least in Germany, I don't know if it was the same in the UK, um, the main meeting grounds were actually the major department stores in the center of the cities. Right, because they usually they usually had um, had basically a computer um, division, or basically um, a computer department, home computer department, and that's where after school everybody from all of the different schools actually who was into this stuff was meeting, and then uh, swapping discs and, uh, and 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 things like that. And <laughs> the interesting thing was that the perfectly adult salespeople, of course, they were completely um, uh, in on the whole thing and were actually themselves um, copying the discs and swapping the discs <laughs> and being part of the scene as well. I, I finally remember a few of those guys. So yeah, that 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 was the typical thing for, I, and I think, I mean, I've heard the stories of my Factor 5 colleagues and co-founders, uh, Thomas Engel and, and Holger Schmidt as well, and it was exactly the same for them um, uh, in, in Cologne, whereas I grew up in um, uh, in a small town called Hildesheim. Um, but we all kind of um, gelled with other people who were interested in the hobby. And with that, you suddenly also had people who were programming. And uh, I guess we all were kind of lucky. I mean, the people who came as as um, programming groups and as hacker groups out of the whole thing, um, we were just lucky that that we were friends with other talented people, be it, um, be it artists or be it, be it uh, coders. Well, Factor 5 was formed in 1987. Um, give us a bit of background on how the company was formed and what kind of the, the mission was back then. Yeah, the, the, um, the company was really formed in 1993. The original Factor 5 team, or basically the Factor 5 very, very beginnings, um, started already in 87, um, actually in Cologne. Um, and it was really just Achim Moller 
at the time, um, who was part of, or basically was the main thinker behind um, behind the light circle. And um, as you mentioned earlier, the, the group started out really as, as hackers. And that's where I met um, those guys also. I think I met them for the first time in 88, in late 88, mm-hmm. when I don't believe Katakis Daenerys, which, which would have been the first uh, professionally published game that hadn't uh, come out yet, but everybody in Germany knew about it. Uh, and everybody was... was um, uh, expecting it to do to do really uh, great things because it word got around that because Achim was known as one of one of the main geniuses at the time in the in the German Amiga hacker scene and everybody knew that uh, he and his buddies were working on um, were working on a shooter game and uh, and so yeah expectations were high I met those guys there the first time at some hacker uh, convention um it might have been in germany or in one of the adjacent um, scandinavian countries because we oftentimes crossed over the border either into the netherlands or up um up to uh, sweden or denmark um, denmark oftentimes was a place because of course the police was shall we just say not so much on the ball up there whereas uh, at some of the hacker parties in in germany um, they actually had started to do crackdowns in the in the late 80s so yeah that's 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 where we where we met for the first time but then the whole thing got momentum and factor 5 was really was really officially as a name was founded um, because um, katakas was finished um, and needed to be published and and the original title was neutralizer and it was an R-type clone for anybody who um, who has played it. And it was a very good clone, um, but it was a clone. And the best publisher at the time in, in Germany and, the, and, and also the publisher, which was the most focused on um, the Amiga, was really um, Rainbow Arts and um, a company called Rainbow Arts. Because of that, of course, Achim uh, and and the gang basically said, "Well, we we want to be with the best publisher because we think we've got the best Amiga game at the time um, in late '88." And so they approached Rainbow Arts and um, and basically got the deal there. Game comes out, um, or basically uh, first needed a new name because at the same time, Manfred Trenz, mm-hmm. um, one of the other legends of the German um, nowadays retro scene and back then game scene, uh, Manfred. Um, who had been just a, a graphics artist and level designer for the great Gianna sisters, um, which was basically a blatant Mario Brothers clone um, that actually uh, only briefly came out and was had to be uh, withdrawn from the market because Nintendo sued over it. So Manfred uh, actually had said, I want to make my own games. And the first game he made was, lo and behold, an R-type clone. Um, and he called it Katakis. Um, so, so Rainward suddenly had the, had the, um, had a C64 R-type clone and they had an Amiga R-type clone. So they said, well, why don't we slap the same name on both of them? Um, and that's how the Factor 5 game also um, became to be uh, known as Katakis. The two games are different, but both of them are clones of R-type. So they're not that different, really. And that's that's really how the whole thing started. And I personally, um, I was in my hometown and by 89, um, by early 89, um, had, of course, uh, seen what, what the Factor 5 guys um, were doing with, with Katakis there. And... Um, 
basically rallied my troops in, in, in my hometown and said, come on, guys, let's, let's finally make games because we wanted to do it for a long time. The Amiga is the perfect platform because on, on uh, the Atari 8-bit, um, we never really got, got around to do much. But a bunch of friends who were really also talented. And, and I uh, was basically finishing, finishing high school at the time and uh, said, well, um, what should we do? And um, we all settled on let's do Amiga versions or Amiga sequels of some of our most favorite games. Um, 8-bit games and um, we voted more or less and the vote came down to um, half of the group was really into Paradroid, um, Andrew Braybrook's uh, brilliant um, C64 uh, game and um, so I called up Houston and basically said, "Hey, can we do can we do an Amiga version um, of um, of Paradroid?" And uh, they said, "Well, unfortunately, um, uh, Andrew is is actually doing one himself. Damn!" Um, and we actually we actually had created a complete demo and everything. So so that was quite the bummer. The other two games that we had picked out were were two favorites of mine. One was uh, Ballblazer um, from Lucasfilm Games, which yeah. which is one of the two original titles that Lucasfilm Games made for the Atari 8-bit and then later also for the, um, for the Commodore. And um, so Ballblazer, I called up here uh, in San Rafael um, at Lucasfilm Games um, and somehow, I don't know how, uh, managed to get through to the um, head of the games division at the time, AJ Redma. Um, and we talked for probably half an hour or so. Um, led to an insane phone bill um, because in uh, 1989 um, that was that was an expensive endeavor to yeah, call uh, the states from <laughs> Germany. Yeah, that was pre-Skype. I think I, yeah. <laughs> I remember my mom being terribly upset because that month when I did all of those calls, um, it was over a thousand dollars. Oh wow! Marks it would have been marks, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> certainly a thousand bucks in in, in nowadays money. Well, I mean, of course, you had a massive hit in 1990 with the incredible Turrican, which, you know, I'm sure everyone is dying for us to talk about who's listening right. to this show. I mean, give us a story of Turrican then. What was the idea there? And um, give us a bit about the development background on that game, the original one. Yeah, sure. The the, the story for, for Turrican um, uh, comes directly out of that that um, uh, Lucasfilm Games call that I did um, here in, in, in the US because they actually had as their uh, partner in Germany, Renoir, as their distribution partner. So um, they told me, well, why don't you, you guys seem to be um, pretty motivated guys, why don't you contact our German distributor, Rainbarts, and, and see what you can do there? I did that. I called, called them up um, and uh, they said, well, why don't you come by um, and show us what you have in Dusseldorf? So that was, I immediately next day drove down to Dusseldorf and um, basically that was in the summer of, of um, 89, got to meet everybody at Rainbow Arts. I already knew the um, the rest of the Factor 5 gang, of course, at the time, um, but but I was introduced to Manfred, uh, Manfred Trans and Chris Hultzbeck, um, um, our our musician um, at the time. So met all of these guys um, and, and we all clicked really, really well. And then two months later, a producer who was supposed to uh, basically work and, and start, he came from um, one of the German um, computer game magazines, was supposed to start at Rainbow Arts, and he dropped out at the last moment, Heinrich Lehnhardt. And um, so he, he dropped out, and um, they suddenly were short one producer, um, and the company was expanding and working on a ton of, uh, ton of games. So they asked me, well, why, why don't you start? You, you know your games. 
you are doing your own games with your group. Why don't you start as a producer director here? Because we could really use you. Um, and I had I had been there for a number of times. Um, at the time, I had been um, I had flown over with um, one of the other producers over to Skywalker Ranch um, here in California um, and had visited Lucas. So it made a lot of sense. So in um, October, November of, of 89, I packed my bags, moved to Düsseldorf and, and started at Rainbow Arts. It was right when the um, when the Berlin Wall was um, actually um, opening, um, I remember it was I was driving down the the autobahn um, right when uh, the first East Germans were basically driving over the the border for the first time. So I started in, started at Rainbards, and of course the first time, um, so I immediately clicked really really well with Manfred um, and with Chris. And Manfred um, had been working for about four months at that time um, on um, four or five months on a um, tech demo or basically a technical challenge because he had done Katakis first. And then his next big goal was that he wanted to get on the C64 um, scrolling in all directions going because that was um, a, a lot of the game development back in those days was, was driven by technical achievements. If you could do smooth scrolling in one direction, well, that lends itself to certain game types. If you can do smooth scrolling in all directions, um, you can do a different game type. Um, I mean, a lot of people always say, well, wasn't it that the Turrican came about because um, you guys looked at, at Metroid and then basically wanted to do a Metroid-like game? That's that's not really how it happened. It was it was this challenge of nobody really had done on the C64 technologically what Manfred wanted to do there, um, basically scrolling in all directions. Now, ironically, at the same time, the Factor 5 guys were challenged with the same thing on the Amiga because on the Amiga, um, you had really nice vertical scrolling, horizontal scrolling games, but you had practically nothing which had figured out a way to really scroll in all directions and and do it do it at arcade speeds um, 50 50 hertz or 60 hertz so unbeknownst to each other actually um Holger Schmidt and and Achim Moller mainly Holger actually were working on the factor 5 side on the very same um, technical problem that Manfred was working on on the C64 and when when I started at at Rainbow Arts um that tech demo was just about done and the game behind it needed to be done. And Manfred uh, didn't have a producer and Holger didn't have a producer. So they basically threw the project to me because um, they said, well, you're the newbie, but that's why um, you probably will get along well with Manfred, um, who had a relatively prickly, uh, prickly nature. And you also like Chris, and and um, you already know the Factor Five guys. So why why don't you take uh, take over that project? Um, and that's actually uh, what happened. And that project then became Tarakin. And and it was really Manfred um, who was the one initially who sprinted ahead. He was about two months ahead of um, where the Amiga version um, was, or so basically where Holger would be. And Manfred Manfred was. Um, convinced that he himself wanted to do Tarakin for the Amiga as well. And one of my first jobs was to actually assess the project and basically talk him out of that and basically say, no, we need to split this up. So, yeah, that, that was all in, in late 89. Well, at the time, um, was there kind of a, a lack of decent action games in the European gaming market compared to, say, the USA and Japan? 
Absolutely, yeah. It was it was it was pretty much a wasteland. I mean, that's that's where these. I mean, on the one hand, Germans tend to tend to clone stuff uh, pretty well, but on the other hand, it was also a dearth of of just the very basic action games, which were either really bad or not at all in existence. I mean, there's a reason why R-Type, why 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 Achim uh, back then chose to clone to clone R-Type um, because R-Type was just a quintessentially good shooter. Actually, uh, Katakis started out as a as a clone of um, Gradius um, first. They first cloned cloned Gradius and then moved over to R-Type because they fell in love with, with R-Type even more so. And um, and that's why Rainbow Arts also did Gianna Sisters, right? Because you didn't have any decent jump and runs, really good jump and runs. So why not mm-hmm. look at the NES version of, of Mario Brothers and just make a clone out of that? Um, partially, the problem was, was really that... Um, the Atari ST had taken off in the UK very, very much. And so all of the UK um, game development, 16-bit game development, was focusing relatively heavily on, on the ST. Um, and and there was a real lack of games because in um, the Amiga started out strong with, a, with an assortment of games from Electronic Arts, um, amongst others, Marble Madness, um, in, in the beginning. But then the Amiga pretty quickly in the US completely tapered off. And so, especially in the field of action games, there wasn't anything good around. And that's what triggered all of this development because the Amiga was selling well in in Germany. In the UK, I mean, nowadays people oftentimes forget that, but it took much longer in the UK to to basically become big um, than it did in Germany. Germany was about a year ahead in terms of Amiga sales. And that's really the the niche that we jumped into and, and wanted to jump into. Well, Turrican 2 is many people's favourite game in the series. And that was when we got to find out a bit more about the character as well. You know, that it was called Bren McGuire and he had a bit of a backstory as well. I mean, tell us a bit about coming up with the story and um, how you wanted to improve on the original game. Yeah, the the, um, the development for, for Turrican was, was, was much more disjointed in the sense that the Amiga version was started later um, and Holger had to catch up and basically it had to be a rewrite. Um, because you couldn't port C64 at the time to the Amiga. It was essentially looking at the at the C64 version and rewriting it for the Amiga. That's why also why why uh, the um, the two Turricans on the C64 and on the Amiga feel quite different. So by the time though, when when we finished um, the first Turrican game, we had a fantastic team. I mean, everybody clicked. Everybody everybody knew each other really well. We had been working together for for six seven months. Um, so we knew that we had something good and we knew that if everybody would basically start at the same time this time, that um, that we could be exceptionally um, better um, than Tarakin 1. So Tarakin 2 really came out of that complete gelling um, of the team. And I would I would agree with you. I would say that Tarakin 2 was probably the magic one where all things fell into place perfectly and also where pretty much everybody um, everybody from the team had their creative input so it was it was less of a one or two man affair it was more of a of a real teamwork um, with Andreas Escher as a graphics artist but also level designer um, and I did some of the designs and Manfred of course still did um, quite a few of the designs and even Holger chipped in with the design so um, that I think that's the magic behind behind Terrican 2 we had the time they gave us um, nine months um, or almost 10 months, which was much longer. And um, we also could live out a lot more of the 
technological um, stuff that we had learned about the Amiga. So, and and of course, Manfred um, was a master of the C64. Um, so he really pushed that thing um, to its limits. Um, so yeah, Turrican, Turrican 2 was the best experience, I would say, back then. Well, one thing that made Turrican a really unique experience and having that kind of arcadey feel was the music as well by uh, Chris Hulsbeck. Like a lot of Amiga yes. games <laughs> at the time, they felt really bare or you'd just have sound effects or just have music. How impressed yeah. were you guys when you first heard the soundtrack? Well, uh- so the the, the 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 story behind the the soundtrack was that I when um, even before I came to Rainbow Arts I was a huge Chris Holtzbeck fan um, and so um, the moment I started there um, I basically was hanging around in Chris's studio every night uh, because he was a he was a night owl um, he never got up before six in the afternoon and uh, and then basically kept working all through the night and i i usually didn't didn't go home before midnight and and so we were also always hanging out in his studio and he was he was basically playing around and 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 doing stuff so and we chatted a lot about the music so so when the Turrican project started i immediately asked chris if he wanted to uh, to to do the soundtrack of course and he said yes but um, only for the Amiga. And um, uh, partially it was technologically driven um, because the C64 version, of course, doesn't have a Hulzbeck soundtrack and doesn't have any music um, throughout most of the game. Um, partially it was technologically driven, but partially it was also driven because Manfred really didn't like uh, Chris's, Chris's music, um, which is ironic, of course. Oh, wow. So, so my, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's at the end of the day the true reason why, why the C64 version um, doesn't have any Hulzbeck music. And I accepted that because it was like, okay, Manfred, if you absolutely don't want it, it's okay. But we can go all out on the on the Amiga, right? And he said, he said that's fine. Yeah, don't I, don't bother me with it. Um, but Chris can certainly do it. And I then challenged uh, Chris and basically said, so in my dream um, music project, every single level and every sub level should have a new tune. And uh, Chris basically uh, said, "Are you out of your mind? Um, that's <laughs> that's that's an hour or two hours of music um, at the size of the game." But I felt it was important um, because he, he he had that knack to have that that beat that actually keeps you going in the game. And we had we basically done the first first prototype level with the Hillsback music, so it was pretty clear um, that it would be that it would be really really strong. But it it was still it was a it was quite a drag to get that many tunes out of Chris. And then for Turrican 2, we, we went even crazier and basically reinvented the um, reinvented the sound code, uh, the underlying sound code completely and everything. But even for Turrican 1, it was it was quite the challenge. And Chris was really the brilliant guy who figured out that um, how to squeeze that much music plus sound effects out of just four voices, four channels, right? Because the Amiga only had four channels. That's why you oftentimes had only music or only sound effects. And Chris really was the one who blew that wide open with a lot of little tricks and reusage of um, sometimes he he did use um, he did use a second channel. And during that time, um, some of the music is, is basically being being suppressed. But most of the time, all of the sound effects that you hear are really just running on on, on one channel. It's it's actually quite cool. Well, of course, the consoles got versions as well. We had Mega Turrican and Super Turrican on the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo. How did developing mm-hmm. for the consoles differ to the home computers then? Um, it was it was. Um, very freeing, I would say, because 
Um, I mean, we always did our own development systems, um, basically um, both the software as well as the hardware. And, and that's actually where the third um, Factor 5 partner, Thomas Engel, came in because he was initially our tools programmer. He then took on the hard task of doing uh, Turrican and Turrican 2 for the Atari ST because nobody else wanted to do the Atari ST. Um, so Thomas Thomas was the one who said, all right, I'll, I'll do it. Can't be that hard. And um, and actually, he did fantastic versions for the Atari ST. But, um, but Thomas really was the one who did all of the software in our development systems. And we had a, um, we had a friend at the German Secret Service uh, in the hardware division of the German Secret Service. And he was the one who built our hardware. And um, he basically built um, uh, cross-development uh, systems. So even when we were doing um, the Amiga version of Tarakin 2, for example, the actual development, the code writing and the compilation and everything or the assembly is being done on the PC on, on 486s at the time. And then it's basically sent over to the Amiga as a as a destination system, which at the time was radically new. I mean, most people were, were still working on the Amiga itself, which of course makes it much harder for development. So when when um, we decided together with Rainbow Arts that we would do um, console Turricans, um, that's when we gave a Sega Genesis uh, or Mega Drive and a Super Nintendo um, to our friend in the Secret Service. He um, reverse engineered the hardware with the tools that they have there um, and then basically um, built development kits for us. And we were able to use our own development environment, which helped a lot because the development environments back then that Nintendo gave you or that Sega gave you were pretty rudimentary and 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 not very good. So I think one of the strengths that we had right from the beginning there was that we that we could work in a way um, that we are used to and that immediately freed everybody up. I mean, Chris had a Chris had kind of a learning curve with FM sound on the because he'd never done FM sound, um, and I think that's one of the um, uh, one of the interesting things about Megaturk, and it's probably the only time that he's ever done a um, uh, true synthesizer sound chip sound as opposed to a sample um, sound chip sound um, on the on the consoles. But in terms of us and what we could do um, with the CPU power and with the with the GPU power, um, we we. We were ecstatic. That was great. The, the catch, the catch really, um, or the only catch was the uh, was the size of the cartridges. That was nasty um, because for for Super Turrican, for example, um, Rainbow Arts um, in the middle of the development suddenly told us that the game couldn't be eight megabits. Um, and just to put things into perspective, when we were doing Super Turrican, most people already had moved on to sixteen megabits. Um, it was basically the, the time of, of Street Fighter 2. Um, and, and suddenly they came in right in the middle of the project and said, um, well, you can only have four megabits. You have to shrink the game down because we were using six at the time. Um, you have to shrink the game down, which then led nowadays in the special edition or basically in the collector's edition, we've got the director's cut, which is the original um, six megabit version of, of um, Super Turrican. So that was tough. Um, Mega Turrican was a little bit better um, in the sense that Mega Turrican had eight megabits, um, so we could we could do more there. But the memory limitations that's that was the only thing. Everything else was fantastic about the consoles. Turrican Free had a bit of a troubled history, I hear. Um, it it had yes. Well, Turrican Three really is Mega Turrican. So the way it worked was that. We were starting out on the Amiga with the whole concept of what you nowadays um, know as as, as Mega Turrican, 
basically the certainly bionic commando inspired a little bit the plasma rope um we wanted to we wanted to play around with with physics a little bit um in castlevania actually the whip in castlevania 4 um was also a big inspiration um so we started out on the amiga with it got it to a prototype stage um thomas actually was the one who was the programmer behind it um and then rainward said well we don't know the amiga seems to be going downhill um and we're talking about 1992 here, late, late um, 1992. And of course, the Amiga was going downhill at the time. And so um, they said, well, why don't you move it over to the to the Mega Drive and basically um, create the game there? So we actually did that, did the complete uh, Turrican 3 as Mega Turrican. And then when we were about 80% done or something, we were approached by um, a bunch of friends who had uh, teamed up with with uh, Chris Hultzbeck, um and had founded a company called Kaiko. And the Kaiko guys and we were really close friends. We were spending a ton of time together. And they, um, especially their lead programmer, um, were in dire financial straits, and they needed a project um, and an easy project. So they they approached Rainwards and basically said, well, um, could we do Terrican 3 because the Factor 5s are now completely uh, focusing on consoles? And Rainwards said, well, yeah, if it's um, since you guys are not charging that much money, um, we're not sure that the that that it will still be viable on the Amiga, but you're but essentially you're so cheap. Um, why don't you do it? We heard about that and then basically said, well, why don't we make it easier here? So um, we're willing to give those guys our source code from the from the mega drive and they they basically have to focus they get the playability for free because the playability is completely from the mega drive because it's the same cpu um as as the amiga um and they can completely focus on figuring out the the graphical um and the sound tricks um because it it, it was of course quite daunting to to take our mega Turk and, and basically get it onto the amiga and that's at the end of the day what happened. Um, the ironic thing is that then Turrican 3, so Mega Turrican got stuck in distribution hell because I had originally uh, pitched it to Konami um, as, as, the, uh, as the publisher and Konami then at the last minute dropped out um, and didn't pick it up. And then it took quite a while until we found for the different territories, um, we found Data East for the US and, um, and Sony, um, uh, Sony Electronic Publishing for um for europe um so it took quite a while and in the meantime turrican 3 actually the conversion of mega turrican was finished on the amiga and came out on the amiga that's why people have the wrong perception there which which game really came first but turrican 3 really is a one-to-one conversion of mega turrican well i even heard there's going to be a 3d version of turrican called tornado at one stage what what kind of happened with that yeah, of course. I mean, in in the later years, we did. Um, so when 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 we were on the run up um, to the GameCube launch, um, especially for the for the initial uh, Space World uh, demos, when when uh, we showed um, the early 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 um, demo version of Rogue Leader, um, we actually had two games in development at the time. It was Rogue Leader on the one side, which was basically Rogue Squadron Two. Um, and on the other hand, we wanted to do a character shooter, which was inspired by, by Tarakin at least. And that was called Tornado. Um, the main character's weapon, because we didn't want to do the flash beam, um, was basically a very Thor-like inspired hammer. That's why it was called uh, Tornado. And we actually were, we had also a demo together where basically the main character was crossing 
um, the Golden Gate Bridge and there were a bunch of cars um, uh, coming um, towards you and you had to blow a ton of stuff up and everything. It was actually pretty cool. And um, we submitted both demos to Nintendo um, for consideration um, to show at um, at the Space World unveiling. And of course, Nintendo being hot for, oh my God, we need something besides Luigi's Mansion, they chose uh, they chose to show only Rogue Leader, um, or basically the, the Rogue Squadron next generation um, demo, which is kind of a bummer. And then of course, that got so much exposure that at the end of the day, the Tornado project unfortunately just we, we didn't even ever, ever cancel it officially, but it just fell asleep. Let's call it that way. The um, other one, which we did actually, which was much more promising, <clears throat> we did a white room demo, which I think one, uh, one of our ex-level um, uh, designers and basically the project lead for that project, um, which would have been Tarakin 3D, um, posted recently um, a capture on YouTube. So you should be able to find that, Matthias Vorch. Um, he's with all of us at Epic these days. Um, and Matthias actually, um, um, he had a really neat take. It was it would have been a very um, acrobatic uh, take on Turrican, but um, otherwise uh, really, really true to the original games. So the exploratory nature and everything, especially of Turrican 2. And we had that going as a, as a so-called white box demo, for the um, for the PlayStation Three as a follow on to Lair, unfortunately, we we tried to find a publisher for it and nobody was really enthused about the um, about the Tarkin name at the time. Um, we we were in discussions with Ubisoft about it, um, but it never happened. But that one is pretty cool, so so look it up on on YouTube um, if you get the chance to. Well, you had another hit in 1992 with BC Kid, and that was uh, mm-hmm. known as Bonk's Adventure on other platforms. Um, what was the story <laughs> with that game? Oh, the story was that that we contacted a lot of um, Japanese companies and showed them um, showed them Super Turrican and Mega Turrican when when we were done with them. And one of the companies I, I already mentioned, Konami. The other company was uh, was Hudson Soft, um, and we loved Hudson Soft because all of us were huge PC Engine Turbo Graphics uh, sixteen fans. Um, so we all had imported PC engines from Japan, and we constantly imported games from there. Um, so we contacted Hudson Soft, who strangely enough had uh, just opened a German office in Hamburg. And those guys wanted to work. Um, the Jap- Japanese idea was that they wanted to work with untapped uh, teams who hadn't been found before. Um, so they actually flew us based on the Super Turrican demo, which we showed them. They flew the whole team. Um, the whole Super Turrican team actually over to uh, Tokyo um, and 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 basically gave us a tour of Japan more or less, um, completely on their dime um, right before Christmas of '92. Um, it was uh, really really nice. Um, Hudson Soft's headquarter was actually in Sapporo, which is up in the up in the north, um, and um, it was a beautiful trip. So we saw uh, we saw Sapporo and and um, for the first time really experienced the whole Japanese culture, which then many times afterwards, of course, was Space World um, and, and Tokyo Game Show we did, but that was the first trip and it was really magical. And they they showed us everything. At the time, Hudson Soft was a was a major player because they had developed the um, the PC Engine hardware. Um, NEC was um, had, had uh, distributed it, but Hudson Soft had really developed the hardware and were developing a lot of the games for it. And that relationship with Hudson Soft really was what led to um, BC Kit because uh, they said, "Well, we want we want to do something on the Amiga." And my favorite project would have been Bomberman because I'm the biggest Bomberman uh, fan to this day. 
and always love to play it with with friends, especially Bomberman '93 on the on the PC Engine. And um, so we we pitched for Bomberman, but unfortunately they already had signed somebody else, uh, another team which did Bomberman for the Amiga. Um, so their second most successful title was was uh, PC Kid or Bonks, uh, Bonks Adventure, um, as you knew it. And um, we loved that. I mean, it's it never was as good as as uh, Mario Brothers, but um, it was a really decent and very unique jump and run. Um, so uh, we said, yeah, right. Why why don't we do that for the Amiga? It would be a lot of fun. Um, and it turned out to be a lot of fun, yeah. And I love that game. But I, I, mean, I remember at the time when BC Kid came out, um, there was also Chuck Rock 2, Son of Chuck, that seemed very similar. And they came out around the same time. And was there any crossover there or was that kind of pure No, not at all. I mean, we, uh, we knew the, the core design guys at the time um, and, and over the years. Um, but I don't think, um, I, I think that, that came out of nowhere. I think their, their game was actually more inspired by Joe and Mac from Data East. Remember that one? Right. Yeah, Joe yeah, Mac yeah. was the, that, that, that had more the graphical style and had, um, so, I, so I think core design was probably more inspired by that. Well, why did the company set up in America as well? Well, I had the connection with with uh, Lucasfilm Games and then later LucasArts, obviously, since I was at Skywalker here the first time in, in 89. Um, and it was always a dream for us um, to work with, with um, Lucas, of course. And we kept in touch. Um, and uh, Achim, actually, Achim Moller, the original Factor 5 guy, and Achim had been working on a... Um, unfortunately never finished because it ran into uh, technical troubles um, on a sequel for um, Rescue on Fractalus, which was the other um, Lucasfilm original game. And Achim, Achim in 89, um, just like I did, um, for the first time went over here to, to Skywalker Ranch um, and met with the folks who had done the original and to learn about um, fractal graphics um, to basically do a sequel um, to Rescue on Fractalus called uh, Return to Fractalus. And then he started doing that on the Amiga. And by the time in mid-1990, he kind of had hit too many walls. At the end of the day, the Amiga was really not a good uh, platform to do uh, to do a fractal-based based game. The, the only results of that, by the way, you can see in the intro of the Amiga game Master Blazer, which was actually, I, I produced that one, and that was my original Buddies Group's Ballblazer sequel, the other Lucasfilm Lucasfilm Games game, on the Amiga. And um, so Master Blazer has the only remaining fragment of, of Achim's original Return to Fractalus um, stuff in the, in the very intro of the game for a bit of trivia. But um, we, we kept in touch with, with um, Lucas and then um, at CES 92 or 93, um, I bumped into those guys in Las Vegas um, when there was still the winter CES was the main, uh, that was before E3 came along, um, was the main uh, trade show um, or one of the main trade shows. And um, so uh, the Lucas guys uh, basically pulled me into their booth uh, and said they had played Turrican. They loved it. Um, and what we were up to. Um, and I said, well, we're talking to Konami right now. We're talking to Hudsonsoft, but we would love to work um, for you guys as well. Um, and they said, all right, then let's do it. Which, uh, which franchise do you want to work on? And, uh, of course, I said Star Wars immediately because <laughs> that would have been the absolute dream. And they said, yeah, no, Star Wars, no chance. Sculpture software already um, has, has, has that under their wing and they're doing Super Star Wars and, and Empire and Jedi. 
And um, uh, then they offered up, well, you could do something based on Sam and Max or a lot of their internal stuff on Monkey Island. Do you want to do a console game based on Monkey Island? I asked, well, um, how about Indiana Jones? And they said, well, Indiana Jones is fine. Um, so why don't you guys do, do an Indiana Jones game? And that's how Indiana Jones' Greatest Adventures happened. And throughout the development of um, Greatest Adventures, we really found that uh, Lucas and we clicked extremely well. So um, then, of course, the next generation of consoles comes along and we started talking to them about doing PlayStation for them. Um, and uh, actually, we were the team which was originally scheduled when the movie when the movie was uh, meant to come out much earlier. We were the ones who were originally scheduled to do Racer, what became Racer, basically based on the pot racing sequence in in uh, episode one. Um, so we 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 kept really close with Lucas. Then we started working on um, Ballblazer Champions for the PlayStation and on Rebel Assault Two for the PlayStation. And by the time that those games, especially on CD-ROM, um, because they were on CD-ROM, when they were further along, um, we really thought, well, we have to either move to the US because the internet was so slow at the time. You, you have to imagine. I mean, it was we had to constantly ship disks via FedEx um, to the US. And it was, it was really untenable because there was no direct quick feedback cycle with the publisher. Um, and so we said, we fear that the company might go under unless we actually move to the US. And why don't we align ourselves closer with Lucas? And I proposed that to, to, uh, to the Lucas guys. And they said, sure, we can do that. Um, we can help you with the immigration. And um, do you have the whole team on board? Unfortunately, um, Achim at that point in time jumped off the ship um, for a few years because he wasn't willing to move to um, to California. But everybody else um, said, sure, why not? And uh, we picked up our bags. And then in um, May of 1996, we made the move with most people um, over here to San Rafael, um, right around the corner from Skywalker Ranch. Um, and... Uh, and the rest is kind of history. And then we, we of course, started working. We finished Ballblazer. We finished um, Rebel Assault 2. Rebel Assault 2 was really successful and uh, showed that we kind of could handle the Star Wars franchise. Um, and then the next step was, and actually the game which got us over here immigration-wise um, that we had signed with them already was, once again, Return to Fractalus. And Return to Fractalus, this time not for the Amiga, um, but for the N64, um, and uh, that would become our first N64 game, but it didn't become Return to Fractalus, it became Rogue Squadron, because at the end of the day, um, LucasArts signed this three-game deal with Nintendo for three Star Wars games, and they needed still one in the classic Star Wars universe, and we immediately said, hey, we want to do this, remember this free flight um this free flight action uh, game um and and right now it's supposed to be a um fractalus sequel um why don't we slap star wars on top of that um and that's really what happened and that that became became rogue squadron was it kind of a relief to be um working on the newer generations of systems and doing stuff like adding fmv and you know having a massive soundtracks on there and a full kind of interactive experience really yeah of course um although having said that i mean ballblazer champions for example was a was a brutal learning curve because we had never done 3d um we had done we had dabbled in 3d and we had done some tests i mean thomas had been had been um doing a few 
polygonal engine tests on the PC, for example, but but um, we were always 2D guys. So so Ballblazer Champions especially was was a brutal learning curve in terms of and lots of lots of early earlier developers in the game industry actually dropped out um, on that transition to 3D. So um, I don't really fondly remember remember the PlayStation games. Also, I really didn't like the look um, of the PS1's poly- um, uh, polygons because it didn't have a filter in the chip. It didn't have um, perspective correctness. And I mean, if you look at PS1 games nowadays, except for very few, they really look rough. Um, it's 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 tough to look at them. Some of some of them are gameplay wise absolutely brilliant, of course, um, but it's visually um, it's it's pretty rough. So the N sixty four was really the one which appealed, which appealed to us the most because it seemed to have the the perfect balance of looks and it wasn't quite as rough as the PlayStation. Now, of course, when you start working with the N sixty four, then you find out just how unbelievably <laughs> unbelievably. Um, hard uh, to 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 work on um, the thing was so no I wouldn't say that it freed us up much I mean Rogue Squadron was a Rogue Squadron was a slouch of a development and learning the N sixty four hardware was was hard and getting getting as much out of it was was even harder so I think actually in terms of happiness of development those times probably were the worst um, <laughs> especially the N64 and the PlayStation were, 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 were really hard ones. The Amiga, I, I fondly look back to the Amiga and the Super Nintendo and the, and the Genesis. They were a blast. And actually, quite frankly, nowadays, uh, developing on consoles also is, is a lot of fun again. Um, but those transitionary um, systems um, to the 3D years, they, they, were, they were tough. Well, you know, the N64, it was just such a different architecture. It was like essentially a little uh, Silicon Graphics workstation, wasn't it, in a, in a small box? So very different from what came before. I've got a, I've got a slightly more cynical um, perspective on, 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 on what it really was. Sure, it was the, yeah. it was the attempt to squeeze a Silicon Graphics um, uh, workstation into a console, but um, they messed it up um, famously on, on a number of fronts. Probably that the cartridge decision was was questionable, but um, that was more in business terms. No, but the but the um, the memory, um, the RAM at the end of the day uh, throughput was was way too uh, way too slow and, and turned out to have much higher latency than everybody was expecting, and it made N sixty four game development really 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 hard. Um, and the development environment that was the other thing, although we lucked out there. Um, because we were in the launch title. So the launch titles actually had to work with the Silicon Graphics uh, environment. And Silicon Graphics really didn't have much of a clue how to build a viable um, viable development environment. And um, if you listen to the stories from the Mario 64 guys, or we personally experienced it because I was good friends with uh, one of the leads on Shadows of the Empire. Um, and those guys were in sheer development hell. Um, and the 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 sheer um, inadequacy of the development tools um, from Silicon Graphics um, are really one of the main reasons why I think a lot of the N64 games kind of fall flat. Um, because especially the early companies like Lucas and Midway um, and and studios like that, they didn't quite have the abilities that that Nintendo's internal teams had. Because of course Miyamoto's teams they 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 would work with anything. I mean they. They can program a fridge if if need be, um, and and would take any environment. Whereas I think that the especially the the US developers um, were really struggling with the development environment. Um, and so 
what happened was that we were a second generation game with Rogue Squadron. So we were lucky enough that we actually um, uh, got a completely different development environment. We didn't have to work with the Silicon graphics stuff. Um, in fact, having, having experienced just how horrible the development cycle for Shadows of the Empire was, I reached out to our old friends SN Systems, who actually nowadays are part of Sony, um, and uh, who built the PlayStation development kits back then. Um, and I reached out to SN at the time and said, hey, guys, um, do you happen to have a development kit for the N64 in development? Um, and they said, um, well, we can't really talk about it yet, but funny that you ask. Yes, we do. Um, so we got one of their early prototypes, um, which was basically just a just more or less a cartridge that you would plug into a stock N64. Um, and then you could use your PC, your regular PC. Um, I think at the time it must have been Pentiums um, to basically do your development, just like you would do uh, game development for PlayStation or game development um, like we had done for the Mega Drive. And for the. And in, in fact, we even got some of our tools uh, carried over some of our tools because the SN uh, systems guys were, were nice enough to work with us on that. So um, we had a functionally 100 times better development environment for, for Rogue Squadron and for our subsequent um, subsequent N64 games than that first generation group had. And that certainly played a role um, why our games are probably seen nowadays as, as technically more advanced on the N64 um, because the development environment made, made a lot of a difference there. Well, obviously, you did more, several more Star Wars titles into the 2000s, including on systems like the GameCube. And, you know, sometimes it's a shame that our show is not a couple of hours long and we can get into everything. But, I <laughs> yes. mean, kind of, kind of skipping forward a bit, I mean, what kind of happened with the demise and the rebirth of Factor Five? Um, well, there, was, there wasn't so much of a demise and, and rebirth. It was more of a, um, unfortunately, we, of course, um, had that uh, unlucky time in 2008 when um, we were working on a huge title for um, a company called Brash Entertainment. They had, they had acquired um, more or less all of the licenses um, around the DC universe. Um, so we were working on Superman um, because um, Superman hadn't been done, done before in a long, or it hadn't been done well and it hadn't been done in a while, um, it made a lot of sense because we wanted to do open-world uh, gameplay, which originally was even the intent for Lair, and then never happened for Lair. Um, but we really, really wanted to do open-world gameplay. And um, so so Superman um, uh, was really kind of the, the redemption attempt because a lot of stuff went wrong on Lair, obviously, um, was, was the attempt to redeem ourselves there. And unfortunately, Brash um, was ran out of money. Um, they had a bunch of projects, fl uh, The Flash and, and a bunch of other games. They ran out of money. They went uh, flat out bankrupt. Um, and that was all in the run-up um, to the big financial crisis, actually, um, in 2008. Um, so they went bankrupt suddenly. We made the mistake that we um, didn't lay off the staff at the studio in, in the U.S., um, immediately, but we believe the legendary entertainment, um, the the movie company or the movie production company, which was behind the um, Superman movies at the time um, and is to this day, that they would actually take over the game and keep financing us um, because that's what they were telling us at the time. Well, several months go go by and um, we had been self-financing the development the whole time. And what aggravated the whole issue is that we were at the same time also working on um, the next Rogue Squadron um, for the Nintendo Wii. 
um, which would have been the, the the Wii, the ultimate the ultimate Wii version of of Rogue Squadron, or basically of Rogue Leader, and and uh, everything that that um, was in the in the uh, classic uh, Star Wars trilogy, really. And um, we were self financing that um, because we Lucas um, at the time was also in pretty dire financial straits. And um, when we approached them that we wanted to do a Wii uh, Rogue Squadron, they said, yes, but we cannot give you any money for it. Can you self-finance? And we said, sure, we can do that. Wouldn't have been a problem um, except for Brash um, going out of business. And that that fact and the fact that we kept on, what was it at the time, about 100, uh, 100 staff um, and basically paid it out of our own pockets meant that by November 2008, uh, we ran completely out of money and then actually had uh, to shut down the whole studio, which essentially in the in the aftermath then um, took down the, the Wii Rogue Squadron game, which was actually completely finished, um, which never came out. Um, which is really a bummer because everybody who who worked on it um, thinks it's by far the best work squadron um, that we ever did. Um, but yeah, we we took that down um, with it um, because it was entangled in in, in legal issues, and um, and then we said, well, okay, why don't we bail from game development for a while? And, and basically try something different um, with the core team. So the core Factor 5 team, the original guys and everybody always stayed together, both in Germany as well as here in the US. Um, and that's when, when Netflix came along. Um, because Netflix at the time had this had this wacky idea that they wanted to um, do a video streaming service. Um, because, of course, they were uh, a disc-based uh, rental company, if you remember. Um, yeah, yeah. So Net- Netflix comes along and is looking for people who would be able to get video streaming um, going on embedded systems, on on consoles. Um, and I happen to know um, the the new founder of the of the division at Netflix um, from something that we had done earlier um, for for the GameCube. And um, so the way these things sometimes happen, right at the point where the whole rest of Factor Five would have fallen apart, um, I called them up and they said, um, "Why don't we have a meeting?" Um, and uh, then we had a meeting and they said, "Well, uh, Electronic Arts wanted to do it for us." But they just blew it um, because they couldn't get it technically going. Um, and I said, of course, yeah, no problem. We can do it. <laughs> we had never done video streaming or anything. Nobody <laughs> had at the time. Um, but of course, we were in, we were in dire straits. Um, so I said, sure, give us two weeks and we're going to get, as a demo, we're going to get your Netflix service going on the Wii. Um, oh, but you had some late nights that two weeks. <laughs> yes, that was crazy two weeks. It was just like the, the Rogue Leader demo back then. But we actually did get uh, Netflix going on the Wii uh, in those two weeks, um, showed it to them, and the rest is history. And after that, basically, um, a lot of the a lot of the console clients and a lot of the console streaming technology that, that Netflix rolled out on all of the different platforms over the following years in 2009, 2010, 2011, that was always done by us. Um, and then later on, we, we branched out um, from 2012 on, we did uh, Hulu and Amazon uh, Prime Video. And in the UK, we did Love Film, YouTube, um, and, and then eventually ended up as, uh, as part of Hulu, um, with Hulu Germany and um, Hulu uh, West Coast here, um, which in reality was really just, just Factor 5. Um, we, just, we just always exchanged the, the nameplate on the door. Um, so that's, that's, that's what we were up to almost throughout the whole uh, last decade. 
Well, that was a awesome bit of kind of morphing and uh, uh, saving yourself there. But um, now- yeah, it's a pivot. Yeah, <laughs> it's a pivot. You could say that. Uh, but nowadays, um, you're also bringing Turrican back. So Turrican Flashback is on the PS4 and Switch. Uh, can you tell you tell us about how this came about and uh, what we can expect? Yeah. So, so we had, of course, the, the biggest fan base for Turrican is, is in Germany, I would say. Um, and um, we had somebody, um, uh, the, the founder, co-founder of uh, Strictly Limited Games, um, and, and their label, um, the other label is um, In-In Games. Um, Strictly Limited contacted us or contacted me and basically said, um, hey, uh, it's, it's 30 years, uh, 30 years um, f- uh, in, in 2020. Um, uh, so why, why is there nothing coming with Turrican? And we had the lucky, the lucky coincidence was that we had finally figured out all of the rights issues a few years earlier. So finally, um, because that was the problem why we couldn't do all that much with Turrican before. So the stars really aligned um, when, when um, they contacted us and we said, sure, um, why don't we work together? Uh, but you guys realize that the that the best title is because you always had seen the console versions, right? In 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 the retro sense. But the best title really is Turrican Two, and Turrican One is also very important. So we can't only have the console versions. We need to get the Amiga emulated, and that was really the big thing where they stepped up with their um, uh, retro talent and everything because they said, "All right, then let's figure this out." Um, how to do Amiga emulation right and Super Nintendo emulation and Mega Drive emulation to really to really make this make this um, into the ultimate uh, thing and the ultimate thing. So the Turrican flashback, which just came out this uh, this week, was kind of for people to get a feeling and kind of play, let's say the main uh, the mainstream Turrican games as they came out. If you're a fan, then go to Strictly Limited. And um, what we've uh, got upcoming from them later on is much broader versions where basically you've got um, more of the unusual titles. So for example, Super Turrican 2 is included in the in the big collector's editions. Um, we've got some swag. Um, and the coolest thing is um, that actually Chris Hultzbeck um, uh, did the work to um, re-record all of the music um, on professional synthesizers. Um, for all of the games. And um, if you go for the collector's editions, then you actually get um, those alternate soundtracks. So you could actually um, either listen to the chip tunes or um, to the more modern CD uh, quality music-based uh, stuff. So um, there's there's a whole range of Tarakan things coming out. And hopefully by the, by the end of 21, which is actually the, um, the 30th anniversary of Tarakan 2 coming out, um, there should be something for, and every nook and cranny of the Tarakan universe should be explored by then. Well, before we did the interview today, uh, Julian, I downloaded Flashback on the Switch and uh, that was my entire afternoon written off. I didn't get any work done today. I just had to <laughs> awesome. sit down and play it all the way through. <laughs> awesome. Um, wait, wait and see. There's, there's going to be cool stuff. Uh, we're talking about downloadable content also for people who get Flashback um, and, who, and who didn't go for the, uh, for the collector's editions uh, right away. Um, we don't want people having to double dip. Um, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be okay. So um, keep, keep your eyes peeled on on what um, what they're going to be announcing um, but I think you can you can soon get uh, additional content which will make you pretty happy for that 
Any plans to do like a completely new Turrican game at some point, do you think? Um, constantly. I mean, we, I mean, obviously we did those 3D um, attempts and, and while the, by the, uh, the last one was really promising, I think what, what everybody is stoked about right now would be, um, to do a 2D, uh, Turrican, um, basically with, with really with the graphical capabilities of the modern systems, um, would be so beautiful. Um, the catch with it is what, what, what I feel at least about a lot of these retro um, retros things done new is that they lock you in a box. And if you, uh, if it's not, if you don't get it exactly right, then the fans are not very happy with it. And with Turrican specifically, yeah. we've got the issue as you see in Turrican flashback that even back in the day, we experimented around quite a bit. I mean, Mega Turrican feels quite different from Turrican 2 or from Turrican 1. And Super Turrican, once again, especially Super Turrican 2, feels very different. So how do you... What's the perfect one? I mean, I think we all agree that Turrican 2 is the best one, but there might be people who 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 grew up with Super Turrican 2 and they would be unhappy because their elements are not in there. So, um, Or somebody wants it more linear and they don't want the huge sprawling levels because certainly that was represented. So my ideal new Turrican would be that we do a game which is all spiffy um, with newest graphics based on Turrican 2 but then also have the ability for users um, to actually do their own levels and and actually have all of the features from all of the other Turrican um, games also in there so that you can do your own mix of Turrican and that ideally, just like Mario Maker, people could share their levels. Because I think the series, if you think about it, there's so many varied um, elements in the in the different Turrican games that it could be really really uh, successful and the levels actually are relatively easy to build so they're not that complicated in that sense it's very similar to to what Super Mario Maker did so so that would be that's that's kind of my dream new Turrican where where we get the community involved and where sure we're going to do our own levels we're going to present them as kind of here this is what we think is cool um, but if you don't like it then create your own Turrican. Well, Turrican Flashback available now for the PS4 and the Switch. Obviously, more to come this year. We'll link that up in our show notes as well, Julian. It's been incredible getting your stories and a little bit of your history, and it's just fantastic to have Turrican back in 2021. So thank you so much for coming on and being our guest this week. Thank you for giving me the time, guys. It was, it was a blast. Mm-hmm.